0: It is a blessing to be here this morning. Um, I, I, I feel like we could almost say, have a prayer and, and, and go home. Um, what a blessing it has been to hear. I have been looking at part two to something we started beginning of this month. We looked at the final message as being given to the world just before Jesus comes, right? In fact, I called it Earth's Final Warning, we looked at the first message which was really about getting to know Jesus, right? Fear God or respect God, reverence God, give glory to him, and worship the creator. That was the big picture. But the next two angels' messages, there's three total, the next two are really warnings. Um, and it's built upon what we've already looked at in Revelation chapter 13. And so I'm going to jump into them today see the picture that's here, and you pray for me. My goal is to, to bring a nice, complete package in about 30 minutes instead of the hour that I have, okay? So um, if you would bow your heads with me. Our Father, we recognize that it is your Spirit that teaches us and opens our hearts, and we pray for that this morning. I pray that you'll give me the gift of speaking and us the gift of hearing your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had to give a message of warning to someone you loved, how would you give it? Would you shout it? Possibly. Would it be in anger? No. See, you realize that messages of warning can be given in a loving way. And I think that we must go into Revelation chapter 14 with that understanding. Uh, Last week... We were looking at what those living in the time of the end are doing. And now we're going to look at specifically the warning. Revelation chapter 14, verse eight, Levi. Thank you very much for reading Revelation fourteen, verse eight. That's a, a fun one. I figured it's better than nine through twelve. Another angel follows, saying, what is the next word in Revelation 14, verse 8? Babylon. This is the first time Babylon's mentioned. Babylon, we know in the Old Testament, we have King Nebuchadnezzar, right? We have Daniel and his friends, they're in Babylon, they've been captive for 70 years. We know the story of Babylon, but this is the first time that Babylon is mentioned in the book of Revelation, Babylon comes up in chapter 16 and 17 and 18, but this is the first mention here in chapter 14. Babylon is a special power. In fact, in every passage um, other than Revelation chapter 14, in Revelation 16, 17, and 18, whenever Babylon is mentioned, it says Babylon the great, or that great city, Babylon, or she, the great Babylon, whatever they would use it, is they use the word great. So it's a, it's a powerful entity. And each chapter, Babylon is mentioned, she is receiving punishment or doing something evil. So just to give a picture when we're looking at Babylon in the book of Revelation. The first, the second message, there's three. First one, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is him and worship him. This is the second message. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So this is the second message. We want to know who is Babylon. Um, actually, we're going to open this up next year. Uh, that's terrible, I know. But let's look at it briefly, Revelation chapter 17, because we're, we're going through chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation, and chapter 14 is going to spell this out. Uh, chapter 17 spells this out more, but for sake of time, we're just going to look at a few points here. 17 M verse one says, "'Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, "'Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot "'who sits in many waters.'" with whom the kings of the earth had committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Sounds a little similar, doesn't it, to what we read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. And then it says, he sees, uh, goes to the wilderness, he sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Talk about some great imagery. Then verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup, full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And then we don't know who she is until this, verse five. And on her forehead, a name was written, what? Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And verse six says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So here is a picture of this woman. She's riding a scarlet beast and this means that she's in charge of it. Beast in the Bible are often, almost always in prophecy, symbolic of a civil power of some kind. So here we have this woman in charge of this beast. Uh, it's interesting, the material she's wearing. You could tell by what she's wearing, whether she's good or bad. In this case, not good, All right? Uh, that's what we see here. She has in her cup... Revelation 14 talked about wine of wrath, of fornication, right? What is in her hand here? A cup of abominations, right? Is that, that's what's being described here in Revelation 17. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints. Uh, very persecuting, cruel power. This is the picture of Babylon in Revelation. Very briefly, um, a woman in Bible prophecy you know it. For sake of time, I will look at one passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. But there are so many more. Actually, let's go to Ephesians today. Ephesians chapter 5. Sorry. Changing, changing, uh, changing verses. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Ephesians 5 verse 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives. What does this have to do with the woman in Revelation 17? Let's hold on. Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. The Bible gives the impression over and over again that a, a woman is a symbol of God's people. It's clearly spelled in 2 Corinthians 11, in the book of Hosea, you see it in the book of Ezekiel chapter 16. These are clear pictures. The a woman is a symbol or, or, or as a representing God's people when they're good and when they're bad. And you can tell when they're good or bad based upon, quite frankly, oftentimes what they look like in the Bible. So that gives you a picture. So here is God's church. Would you assume this is God's church in a good way or a bad way? These are people claiming to God's people, but they're not good. Isn't that what we're seeing here? And... Um, Would you want to avoid this power? Uh, Absolutely. It does not look like something you want to spend time with here. Um, By the way, you have a woman who professes to be God's people and yet is persecuting God's people and teaching abomination. You see that picture? Claiming to be God's people yet persecuting God's people and having abominations. Why? Why is she doing this? Because she left her husband, Christ, and went after other love. Can't miss that. It's a message for us today. God has called us today to stay with our spiritual husband, right? Who is that? Jesus Christ. It's when we leave him and go after other loves of some kind that we're in danger. And that is the danger of this church of people. Um, It's a big picture, but I'm going to apply it to us on an individual basis as well this morning. All right. So you have this phrase here uh, back in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Babylon is what? Fallen is fallen. It's repeated here. Um, The word translated fallen is from the Greek aorist verb. Anyone who studies Greek, whenever we discuss aorist, we just groan. Because uh, they always play around with it and do some interesting things with it. This word is talking in past tense about the future. So that's why sometimes Greek scholars groan. It's using a past tense to talk about the future. Here's why. It's so, John, when he's writing this, he is so confident that what God said will happen that he speaks about what will happen as if it already has. Please note that. John is so confident that he uses a Greek word that's, that's a, it's known to talk about the future in the past. Because he wants to show, I I know God said it will happen. I'm so confident that I'm gonna use a, a phraseology to show that it already has, even though it's still about to come. So that's the picture John is using. He's very confident that Babylon will fall. And that is really, really good news. Here's why. Babylon is a persecuting power. Babylon is a power with abomination. Babylon is a power that's dangerous. And God said, I want to let you know they will not always exist. They will come to an end. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Um, has ancient Babylon fallen? If you went to look for Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, would you find it? Yeah, you'd find ruins, right? They want to rebuild it. Did you know that, uh, wow, who was that guy? 19, late 1980s, early 90s? Saddam Hussein, you've heard that name? Yes. Wanted to rebuild Babylon. Had supplies starting to be put together. But he had something called the Gulf War that drained his financial reserves and it wasn't able to happen. There have been people who have attempted to rebuild it, but it hasn't been rebuilt. God actually said Babylon won't be rebuilt. It's not going to happen. And so when we look at its application here, this is good news, Babylon will disappear. Um, Revelation chapter fourteen, verse eight. It says, "Babylon has fallen, that great city, because she made all nations do what, drink what, the wine of the wrath of her fornications." Wow, um, man, she's not just a bad woman. She's trying to get all the powers of the world to become her drinking buddies. Not just the bad person herself, but trying to get other people to join in her badness. And that's the picture we have here in Revelation chapter 14 in verse 8. How many nations is she going to affect? All nations. So we realize that we're looking at a power here, this Babylon. We're going to be looking at Babylon more again. But to know at this point, it's a world world wide power that's getting all nations to get involved with fornication. Biblical fornication, in a spiritual sense, is leaving your first love, who is Jesus Christ. So that's, the, that's the, the goal that Satan is using Babylon to do, is to remove people from God. And that is what we see here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Then it goes on and says this. Um, verse nine, then a third angel followed them. I know that was the brief synopsis, but we're going to go now to the third angel. And a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, ah, before I read any further, where do we read about a beast with an image and a mark? Where in the Bible do you read about a beast with an image and a mark? Revelation, you're right. Good. What chapter? Revelation 13. So leading up to Revelation 14, where we read about this warning that we're reading, Revelation 13 has already talked about it. Revelation 13 says there is a beast who has an image and has a mark. The beast is described in Revelation 13, 1 through 8. The image is brought up in Revelation 13, 10 through the 18 section, And then the mark is the last part there, Revelation 13, 16, 17, and 18. Revelation 13 gives you the whole picture, the foundation for the warning, the third warning here in Revelation 14. All right. This is not a good one. If anyone receives, worships the beast, his image receives his mark of the forehead or his hand, he shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night to worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. There are churches, one of them is a sister church in our district here, who read this every week. Revelation chapter 14, verses six through 12. It's the final message to be given to the world. It's when to be reminded. But I'm standing up front sometimes and I'm reading, i saying, ooh, are we excited about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever? I'm not, and that's not the point. What is the point? Could you hold on with me? Because we're gonna walk through this and we cannot miss what God is trying to tell us here. We cannot miss. In fact, I'm going to say it twice. I want to just make sure that I'm not missing this. God is not doing this to take revenge on those who have slighted him. Okay, that's the first point. Second, however, God will defend his people and protect them against those who would hurt them. So can I repeat that? God is not doing this to take revenge on those who have slighted him. However, God will defend his people and protect them from those who are hurting him. So this is a a big picture. Uh, You say, well, you know, um, I don't know what you all face, but I've been around long enough to know that everyone faces pain in their life. And quite frankly, everyone is persecuted in some way some receive more persecution than others but everyone is battled and beat up by satan in some way or another and sometimes we want to fight back and we must realize that god has it under control he will what's the phrase that that, that we use in the bible vengeance is mine says the lord it's not god's people So when I read this at the end, I'm not reading and saying, man, I have a God who can't wait to hurt people. I say, have a God who's gonna defend his people from those who will destroy them. That's the picture that we see here in Revelation chapter 14. But who is this beast? Now, uh, those of you who were listening to a sermon series in Revelation 13 last summer, (laughs) well, remember, we discussed this then. So I'm always... um, I'm going to do a very brief review and then say, biblically, uh, prophetically speaking, who the beast is and the image and the mark. Can you, can you stick with me? I promise it's going to flow as smooth as I can make it. Here we go. Here it is. Based upon Revelation 13, there's nine identifying points. Here they are. It would be a religious kingdom. It's a mixture of uh, church and state. Number two. It would be a temporal power, a civil power. It would come to its civil power in a highly populated area. Number three, it would come to its power after the decline of the Roman Empire in eighty-seven, four seventy-six. Number four, it received its power, its seat, and authority from pagan Rome. Number five, it would claim to be God and have the power to forgive sins. Number six, it would persecute those who were the true followers of God. Number seven. It would rule for 1,260 years. Number eight, it would look like it had died and then come back to power. And number nine, it would have authority over all the earth. There is no power that fits this other than the medieval Roman church, which in the present uh, is the papacy, the religious political power of the Roman Catholic church. Now, I want to be clear, uh, very clear. God is not speaking about Catholic people. God is speaking about a religio-political power that draws people away from Jesus Christ and the truths of the Bible. That's the picture that the Bible is giving us. I am convinced from prophecy that there will be members of every congregation in the world. I'm talking about denomination. That was probably a better way of saying it. Every denomination who will be in heaven. That I'm sure of, biblically speaking. You know why? Revelation chapter 18 says, come out of her, my people. That means God has his people. They're his people even when they're in the other place. Does it make sense? But he will call them out. So this is, uh, I want to be crystal clear. I've heard some people say, you know what, then if you're this denomination, you're lost, or you're this denomination, you're saved. Uh, That's foolish, if I can say that from a biblical perspective. All right? Uh, Your salvation is based upon your living connection with Jesus Christ. Amen? That being said, though, this does need to be brought out. If a warning like this is being given, should the warning be given from the pulpit? It should be. And so this is what you're hearing here. Um, so we're looking at a corrupt system. Um, now we read about here that there's an image that we need to be aware of image of the beast. Now the image of the beast is described in revelation chapter 13 underneath the second beast who's going to create an image to the first beast. Please go back. YouTube has this. If you wanted a refresher just to see where in the world did I go to get to this? We spent 45 minutes to an hour for each one of these to lay it out. And I'm just reviewing because it fits as part of this third angel's message, right? All right, the image of the beast. At the height of its power, the papacy clothed itself with civil power. So not only was it a church, but it was also a political power. It was a state, that's right. Um, It had authority to punish dissenters, confiscate goods, imprison people, execute them. Um, it was a union of church and state with the church in charge and telling the state what to do. Any of you, just go ahead and look at your history. Uh, this is amazing. We call it, uh, if you look at this in history, we call it the Dark Ages or the Medieval Ages. You see about this in Europe all the time. So, what will the image of the papacy be? It'll be another union of church and state. And according to the Bible, it will be the United States using its power to enforce the agenda of false worship. Um, I'm I'm an American. I am very thankful to be a citizen of the United States. At the same time, I recognize that any time a state uses its power to abuse and to hurt and to control their people, they're no longer a good state. Is that fair? And we must be aware, a prophecy foretells it. And I can tell you some of the things that I see today, I am more convinced than I've ever been that we're getting close to this time described in Revelation chapter 13. The mark of the beast. So again, the only reason we're talking about the beast, the image, and the mark, because there's a warning against those who worship the beast in his image and those who receive the mark. The mark of the beast, uh, we read about at the end of chapter 13. But interesting enough, uh, the first mark that we see in a forehead is not the mark of the beast. In Revelation, it's the seal of God, right? In Revelation chapter 7. So the mark of the beast stands in opposition to the seal. Again, we've had a whole message discussing this. I'm just reviewing it here. The beast, God's seal, is a sign of his creatorship and relationship with people. It's a sign of his creatorship and relationship with people. And that is the seventh day Sabbath in honor of the creator God. That's the picture. That's God's seal. In fact, over and over, he uses phrase, this is going to be a sign between me and my people. What is it? Some sign? It wasn't, it wasn't like a, a lamb being sacrificed. What it was, was pre-sin. The Sabbath was pre-sin. The Sabbath was in a perfect world, in honor of a creator God. And so it's a very special sign between God and his people. You know, I find it interesting. Uh, the context of the Mark of the Beast is not the early church. The context of the Mark of the Beast is the very end of time. So that being said, I want to make sure I'm reading this. Um, You know what it is. I'm a person who shoots from the hip sometimes. And sometimes if I don't read it, I'm going to say things. I can't believe I said that. I probably already did that today, but I'm going to still try not to do it too often. Um, This is going to be enforced worship on a day other than the creation Sabbath, which is the seal of God. So the mark of the beast is going to be in opposition to. The seal of God is worshiping the creator God on his day. The mark of the beast is enforced worship on a day that's in opposition to that. Um, based upon Roman Catholic writings, that is worship on Sunday as opposed to Sabbath. Um, if you read many of our Catholic friends' writings. And I'm not speaking about, again, individuals. I'm speaking as a system. The picture is, you know what? The proof that we are superior to the word, the Bible, is that we can actually change the Bible. And one of the ways we've done it is this way. So that is, again, a message on that. Feel free to check out. So I want to emphasize something here. This is not a battle of worship days per se. This is a choosing of which rule of living will be accepted by our world. If I could explain it, it looks something like this. Will we worship our creator? These are the two options. Will we worship our creator, God, and accept his rule of living that's based upon love to God and love to our fellow man? Right? What would that be? Ten Commandments. Remember what he says in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, 37 to 39, um, that on, on these two, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Thank you so much. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. So that is the foundation here. Is that going to be the foundation of us? Is it going to be the foundation of God's people at the end of time? It has to be. That is their foundation. It's where they stand. Or will we worship or be in compliance with a system that's inherently Selfish? deceptive, and cruel to those who oppose it. Revelation 13 lays out all those descriptions. It's our choice. Am I going to be in compliance, not compliance, am I going to be in love with, follow through God's way of living? Or am I going to live a selfish, cruel life? Those are the two oppositions that we see in the book of Revelation. Um, Sometimes you say, well, Chuck, it doesn't really come out that way. Well, When you love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, and you love your neighbors yourself, you will do what he asks you to do. Not because it saves you, but because you're in love with him. Makes a big difference. Um, I'm a parent. and I can tell when my kids are doing something because they don't have a choice. You know what I'm saying? I'm dad. and Each person, you run your home, God bless you the way you need to. But in my house, my wife and I, we're in charge. At least we think that we are. But the reason is because in theory, I love them and I know what's best for them. Does that make sense? However, I can tell sometimes when I get this. Right? And you would probably guess it's not from Ian. Um, I get that. Sometimes, though, I get this. Thank you so much. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. But what God's looking from us is not an eye roll. Because that's no longer service, is it? God is looking from us. We've grown up, God. We're no four-year-olds or eight-year-olds or 12-year-olds. We are mature adults who can look and say, God, you're right. We choose you. Take us. No questions. That's what God's looking for. Um, And that's, that's the key here when we look at this concept of living a life of love. All right. We should keep that in mind when we read this judgment because this judgment is rough. If you drink the wine of Babylon, you will also get more wine. You realize that. If you drink the wine of Babylon, you drink the wine of the wrath of God. So if you get one, you get extra. Um, Wow. You are, it's given full strength. It's a cup of indignation. There's fire and brimstone. Smoke is sending up. By the way, the word forever and ever means until life ceases to exist, right? Biblically speaking. Um, It says they have no rest day nor night, and that is until they cease to exist. That's the context when we look at forever and ever in the Bible. God is not doing this. Here's the repeat of that thought. is not doing this to take revenge on those who have slighted him. Could I read a couple passages? Because I think it's a key point. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. And then we will come over to the New Testament. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. This is the heart cry of God in the Old Testament. Uh, beautiful. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, Say to them, this is God telling Ezekiel, here's what I want you to say. As I live, says the Lord, I have how much pleasure? No pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, and then you hear the heart cry of God. Turn! Turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn. I don't want you to go down this path of self-destruction. I want you to live. The next one, Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is speaking. This is the last week of his life, right? Uh, here on this planet, uh, before his crucifixion. And let me clarify this, right before leading up to his death, Matthew chapter 23. And in verse 37, he has just listed a whole bunch of kind of rough stuff, woes, on the false religious leaders of their time. And what we're talking about is false religious leaders of today when we're looking at the beast and Babylon, right? Here is God's heart, here's Jesus' heart towards false religious leaders, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. How often? You, you're running out there. You're hurting people. You're hurting me. You're hurting everyone. I want you to come back to me, but you don't want to come. This is the heart cry of Jesus. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. You notice um, it's consistent throughout the Bible what we're reading here. Second Peter three nine says this. It's one I hope if you have not memorized it that you do. It says this. The Lord is not slack concerning his what? as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward... Wait, wait. Who's the us? (laughs) Can can you use a personal pronoun here? Me. Me. Long-suffering towards who? Me. Me. I'm so glad you said me. Okay? I'm going to say long-suffering towards you. Can you say that to somebody? Long-suffering towards... Yeah, sorry. You're getting too much interaction, right? Long suffering towards me. And then it says this, and not willing that any should perish, but what? All come to repentance. This is the heart of God. Yes, there is going to be a choice in the end of time. I loved our opening song, 606. There comes this choice between the darkness and the light. That choice is coming. I think the choice starts today. Will I choose him, or am I going to choose my own way? But in the end, it's going to be so graphic, so clear, so distinct. There won't be any kind of muddy water. You know, God will defend his people. Even though he's not wanting to take, uh, uh, do this, he will defend his people. Notice what it says um, In Psalm 17, this is David. We're just going to look at two for this. Psalm 17 and the other one is Zechariah. And Zechariah is very easy to find because Zechariah is right before Matthew. Psalm chapter 17 and verse 7. Psalm 17 verse 7 and 8 and 9. David, and uh, if you ever want to hear about, read about people Uh, The righteous being hurt, excuse me, but the wicked being hurt for the righteous sake, that's David all the time. He's making statements like, God, avenge me. And David was pretty rough, rough prayer. Get even with them. They're getting away with it. This is David sometimes. Notice what he says here in Psalm chapter 17, verse seven. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Hey, we trust you. Save us from those who are rising up against us. Then he says in verse eight, keep me as what? The apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. He said, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. Now I like that phrase apple of your eye, but if any of you have a center column reference, the word apple could be substituted for pupil. Just like you protect the pupil of your eye, I'm assuming most of you protect the pupil of your eyes, right? He's saying, God, protect me the same way. That's that's David's call. Just like you would protect your own eyes, protect me, God. Now we look at Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah chapter 2. And we are coming to our close here, but I wanted to just pull out a few of these texts just to be clear in this area. Zechariah chapter 2, and starting with verse 7. Zechariah chapter 2, we'll look at 7 and 8. And this connects completely with what we've been looking at today. Up Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Amazing how this ties in, right? Escape those of you who are in Babylon. Then it says this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you, Touches the apple of my eye. David says, treat me like the apple of your eye. And God now says in Zechariah 2, you are the apple of my eye. I'm going to protect you. So when we look at this picture in Revelation chapter 14 with this third angel's message of this this, um, punishment, God is saying, I'm taking care of my people and I promised I would. This is me taking care of my people. And he gives every opportunity for those that don't to become part of his people, that are not to become part of his people. All right, Revelation 14, verse 12. This is a passage that is beautiful, often quoted, and I'd like to close with this. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that... Commitments of God and the faith of Jesus. Beautiful. few points as we close. Patience of the saints. <laughs> in the end of time, God's people need patience. Living in the time of the end when Babylon will be alive and not fallen yet. When the beast is in power, God's people need patience patience. In Revelation chapter 13, you have two powers that are mentioned. You have the first power, the sea beast, which is killing everybody. You have the second power, which is the beast from the earth, killing everybody. And right in the middle, there it is, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 10, it says this, here is the patience and faith of the saints. When you're surrounded on all sides, you need patience. Or another word would be endurance. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God. God's commandments are based upon love to him and our fellow humans. This is why God can say, if you love me, keep my commandments. Just makes sense, because commandments are based upon that. And then the faith of Jesus. You know, there's a debate over whether it's faith in Jesus or faith like Jesus, and I like to say, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is faith in Jesus and it's faith like Jesus. Do you remember the story? Jesus has finished almost his final week before the crucifixion. Thursday night, he has left the, the Last Supper. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, something happens. He tells his disciples to remain by the gate and he brings Peter, James, and John with him. They come a little bit further in and then he tells them to stop. Don't come any further. And he asks them to do something. What did Jesus ask his three disciples to do for him? Pray. He goes, could he pray for me? Can you imagine? We go to our friends all the time and say, pray for me, right? Jesus is asking them to pray for him. It always amazes me uh, at the point that he was in and the fact that prayers of humans would benefit the son of God. Well, he then goes a little bit further. And as he's there, he kneels and he prays a very specific prayer there found in Matthew chapter 26. Lord, if it's possible, could you take this cup from me? But if not, not my will, but your will be done. That is the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus says, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I'm here. God, if there's any way possible, could you just overturn this for me? Change it, do something different. But not my will, but your will be done. It's somehow accepting the fact that God, I honor you as sovereign. And if you can can do something for me through this, I can't see it, but I'm going to trust you even though I can't see it. That is the faith of Jesus. We have an awesome creator. He loves us with an everlasting love. We're in a world that is quickly heading towards the end as we know it. Our creator loves you. He wants you to know Him. Better, He has given you a message to know that he does see what's happening on our planet, in our countries, in our schools, in our churches, in our families, and in our lives. He wants you to know that there is the best life available. And that is life with him and for him. He also wants you to know that. You are on his side. Though you will be mistreated, love will ultimately win out. And the selfish cruelty that is in this world and often faces us will be destroyed. My question today for myself and for you is this. Will you give your heart to God? He will give you the patience to stand through your trials today. He will give you his love to keep his commandments. And he will give you his faith. Will you give your heart to him? That is my desire. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We recognize today the solemnity of the message in Revelation chapter 14 as a promise that you will take care of us, that you are in charge, and though we must endure with patience, ultimately, we will be able to stand with you in the end of time. Please bless us, Father, to this end. Take our hearts, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.